I would have moments where I, that, that felt like little successes and then long periods that felt like failures or just, just things like, like it just felt like pushing a boulder up the hill all the time. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. There are so many things that I can say about today's guest, Rishi Hirway, and I'm going to whip through some of them in a second. But the big thing that's front and center right now is that his new Netflix miniseries, Song Exploder, based on his wildly popular podcast of the same name, was just released on Netflix Friday, October 2nd. On it, he talks to musicians like Alicia Keys, R.E.M., Hamilton creator and star Lin-Manuel Miranda, and Ty Dolla Sign. To say that it is huge is an understatement. I met Rishi when I was a guest on his other giant podcast that he co-created and co-hosted with my former castmate from the West Wing and Scandal, Josh Molina. That podcast is the West Wing Weekly, yet another zeitgeist podcast. Originally, though, Rishi moved to L.A. to record music and score films. So as wildly successful as he is now, for a long time, he still identified himself as a struggling or failed musician. His humility, combined with laser focus and attention to detail, is perhaps what inspired me the most. There's more I could say, but we really got into it, so much so that we are releasing our conversation with Rishi in two parts. Before I get there, I want to remind you that my book, 10,000 Knows How to Overcome Rejection on the Way to Your Yes, can be pre-ordered at the link in our show notes. It comes out October 27th through Wiley Publishing. And if you dig this podcast, please rate and review it wherever you listen and share it with people you think it may help. Today's conversation really gets into the long-term commitment that is required for an artist to not only make a living, but eventually thrive. Lots of struggle, lots of overcoming. For today, I give you part one of musician, entrepreneur, podcaster, sound expert, artist, Rishi Hirway. I saw a an article in Dwell magazine about hmm. your studio and your home and it it just made me think you're so intentional and efficient and you know and yet I saw you you know you also said something like you, you the way you work is fussily and there <laughs> there were some things that I thought were were interesting I'm just kind of wondering where did that intentionality and efficiency begin for you? Is that something from your parents? Is that something from your childhood? Were you always that way or was it learned? What? I think it, uh, it is from my parents, but, um, but in terms of acting in opposition to how I grew up, um, my, my house was always kind of cluttered. There's always stuff. And, we lived in a small house and, uh, and I just, I guess I kind of just thought that, that was the reality of, you know, when you live in a small house, there's, there's stuff and, you know, it's out and that's, you know, you just have to kind of deal with a level of 
of clutter when you've got four people living in a small house. Um, and it was only much later, you know, when I was an adult and had moved out and had my own place and had to, you know, answer some of these questions about like how you set up your house myself that I realized my parents are kind of messy and disorganized. Interesting. I, you know, they're the people who always <laughs> told me to clean my room and things like that. So I, I ascribe to them a level of cleanliness because they were the people who, who gave me those orders. Um, but then I, I realized actually there were a lot of flaws in the way that they did things. Um, my, my dad, you know, he's always been really like, he's always preached a level of orderliness. You know, he's always been like, make a list. If you have to, you know, if you make a to-do list and, and follow through on that and write things down and, and, uh, and that's true. But like, you know, just like the modern version of it, my dad keeps, he writes everything down, but he writes down all of his internet passwords in like one notebook and they're not organized in any kind of way. It's all in one book, but it, you know, now that book is several pages long. And so, you know, my dad, <laughs> and, and now my dad uses social media and sometimes not so well. And I'll be like, dad, uh, you posted the same thing three times accidentally. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, do you want me to delete it for you? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, what's your password for this, for this account? He's like, hold on. And then I, you know, we'll be FaceTiming and I'll see him just turn page after page. And he's like this one. And I'm like, nope, that didn't work. He's like, oh, I must've changed it. And then, you know, it's just pure chaos. Yeah, yeah. And I did not want, I didn't want to be like that. Interesting, because I'm I'm laughing at it because I unfortunately identify with it a little bit, not as bad as my own father, but I have these same flaws where <laughs> my my the ideal that I have in my head and the actual reality of what I do are two different things. And yeah. I looked at that article with you, and I even see the backdrop here as we're talking, and I'm envious of the just hyper awareness and level of organization. And I think it contributes to a lot of your success. So that's interesting to hear that it came from, it, it was grown out of chaos. Now you have a sibling. I don't know if it's a brother or sister. Are they Old, as older organized? Sister. Older sister. Is she as organized as you are? No, definitely not. No. And no. <laughs> a lot of times, a lot of time is spent when I visit my family, trying to sort of like help them rein things in a little bit, you know, every time I would go visit my, my parents, I would just get so frustrated, you know, in a four day visit, one of the days, at least half the day would be spent me, you know, rearranging the shelves in their kitchen and their, their pantry, just be, to be like, how can you find anything? You, you know, part of the problem is my dad is so, is so kind and, um, and generous. He doesn't want you to have to do anything. You know, when I come to visit, he's like, oh, you're our guest. And so I'll be like, you know, can I, you know, I don't know, whatever, like he'll be, he'll be like, what do you want to eat? And I'll be like, oh, I'll get it. You know, I'm looking for a bag of chips or something like that. And then to try and find it, you know, there's just cans and boxes <laughs> and things and there's no system. And I'm just like, I have no idea where anything is. And he's like, oh, I'll find it. I'm like, okay, dad, you must know where it is. But then he does the same thing. He's got to pull everything out, you know, and, right. and, and shuffle through everything. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's not like this actually comes naturally to me at all. Like, I think the thing that scares me is that I'm actually probably just like that in my nature. 
and and so I've had to like try and force myself to be uh, some kind of version of myself that that isn't one hundred percent natural. You know, like trying to be organized is a is a matter of constant effort. Interesting. Even now, like it has not gotten to cruise control where you're just, this is the way you are. I would imagine there are systems and hacks, even in some of the articles I read about you, where there are certain, uh, you know, keyboard shortcuts, uh, just (laughs) seeing, you know, that kind of thing, just seeing how you operate, um, that it must be easier than it was, say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But you still kind of think of yourself as not that, that that's kind of... uh, inspiring to me actually because it means there's hope for the rest of us if this is not your natural default yeah i i I think the thing that's helped me a lot is realizing that systems are there for a reason you know like you can create organizing principles and then you can try and follow those as well as you can and then eventually it starts to fall apart but at least you know at least you know what it was supposed to be right um there's a radiohead song uh everything in its right place the, the title of it is everything in its right place. And I think about that, just that phrase all the time. And, and I think about how, uh, you know, it goes both ways. You need to have everything ha- needs to have its has everything needs to have a place where it belongs so that when you're trying to clean up quickly, you know, and whatever this widget shows up and you're like, oh, yeah, it goes in this drawer in this room, something like that, rather than the way that my family's house has always been and the way that my parents continue to live is just like well you put it away put it away means like you put it in a box my dad has a, has a, a system if you call it a system where it's like it's time to clean up he will take everything and just like put it in a cardboard box so that it's like away and then uh, uh I, I at one point i just got would get so frustrated with him because i'd be like where is this thing and he's like oh it's in this box there was a, a moment where i like i looked there were three sort of big rubber made bins in a room and i opened opened it up and in every single one of the bins there would be like a smaller collection of like shoe boxes and in each of the shoe boxes there would be whatever there would be a pen you know a paper clip a letter, a bill, <laughs> like yeah. every single thing had any kind of system. And, and then they would just be, you know, as one got filled, you'd put it in a bin, in a bin and yeah. then that bin got filled up and then you get another bin and you just keep It's like the on deck bin to be organized. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I would but laugh it, harder, but I almost want to cry because there's a part of me in that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so. the thing that, that really has affected it and, uh, and makes me push harder to try and be better is actually my wife who is on a on a whole other level from really? from me. Yes. Uh she is um uh she's just very very neat. Um you know like she has a different threshold for neatness than I do. And so in our house in between the two of us you're I'm the, the messy mess. one. Uh. Yeah. And so I kind of have to I have to rein it in for her sake. Interesting. So she's made you better in that arena. Yeah. So, so this kind of plays into, and, and, you know, I want to, I want to dive into song exploder. I want to dive into West wing weekly, but I'll almost hold back, but I just want to say one thing, which is that's kind of the beauty of you as I see it is this kind of, you have both sides to you. It seems like you have that organized business mind, strategic intentional and yet you also have uh 
from what I've observed, a love for the spontaneous and and a love for just I would imagine that that bleeds into your music, you know, a lot of practice to be able to be free, structure and freedom. Um, you so you're saying that you weren't really this organized until a little bit later. You you went to Yale University, you know, slouch in the um, ac- academic arena. So if you were not as organized back then, now it seems like that's one of your superpowers, the the, <laughs> the strategy and organization. But obviously you were doing things pretty well back then as well, just to get into Yale. What was it? I know you're an intelligent guy. What would you, like your upbringing kind of in, in school, what was your... What were your interests? How early did music become a part of your life and how academic were you? Music became really important to me as part of my identity, I think, uh, somewhere in middle school and then really in in high school. Um, Like in in middle school, being in the school band was, you know, one of the things where I had a a lot of fun Um, and I was in the percussion section. I was I played piano. Um, and so it was me and then, you know, the six guys who were, who were also playing drums and, you know, they would have to take turns on the drum set and everybody else would play like the bass drum. And, and then, and then there was another, uh, another person came in, a girl came in to play piano. And so then I was sort of now, now I was cycling through, um, the rest of the percussion section too. So I would sometimes have to play bass drum or whatever. And, uh, and that was how I started playing drums. And then in high school, I started playing drums in bands for real. That became my main instrument. And that was when I really, uh, really fell in love with, with music. Yeah. And what was it about the music? Was it the camaraderie or was it the music itself? Was it a combo? Was it belonging to a, a, a group of musicians and artists? I, I think at first it was just me, you know, so I, I played piano. I grew up playing piano. Um, and then when I was in high school, I was taking piano lessons. Like I, I took uh, jazz piano lessons at, at school and, um, the jazz piano teacher. So I, I went to a, I went to a private school, um, on a, a financial aid. And the part of the financial aid package was that you could also get financial aid for private music lessons so through, um, there, there was like a, a special separate kind of division of the, the financial aid department that was just for that, that you could apply to. Um, and it was a really wonderful thing that they did. Um, so I could take piano, lessons, you know, private piano instruction from the, you know, they had a bunch of piano teachers and one, one of the teachers was the jazz pianist, um, and I would take lessons from him, and he also was separately in a in a band with an with a upright bass player and a drummer. They had a jazz trio, and the two of those guys also taught jazz at my high school. Uh, this is a, this is too much detail, but <laughs> through him, I managed to get the he he let the drum teacher give me a key to the drum room, even though I wasn't a drum student, um, and so I had basically like access to these drums whenever I wanted, which was normally reserved for, for other people taking piano, you know, drum lessons, but you'd have to pay more, you know, you'd have to pay for a whole other teacher if you wanted to have access to the drum lessons. And that was, but you did not, yeah. but you had that access, but yeah. I had that access just through them. So they were, it was really sweet and generous. And, and so I would go in there and my, like the way I learned to play the drums was by, uh, just like having my, you know, Walkman 
um, my, like having a, a tape of my favorite songs and then just playing along with that, like just trying to play the songs over and over again um, by myself. So there wasn't really, I, I wasn't in a band for a while. I was just trying to, I was just trying to learn to play by, by playing along with songs that I loved. Yeah. And, and what about prior to that or at, at the high school level, were you playing any sports? Like, were you involved in any other extracurricular activities prior to music or was music it for you? No, I was, uh, before high school, I played soccer and basketball and, um, and those were both really, uh, really important to me. I loved, I loved both of them. I, you know, I loved basketball especially, but I was not tall enough, uh, um, to really, to really take it seriously when I got to, when I got to high school, I tried out for the, for the JV team and it was like, no, nah, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> really? And yeah. at that point you said, okay. And you kind of made the segue into, yeah. into music more so. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I think before high school, you know, you can kind of do everything in high school. You kind of have to start learning to pick your paths and, and it's kind of the ways in which you start to form your identity. And I was like, yeah. okay, I guess I'm, I guess music is part of my identity. It wasn't, it wasn't going to be sports. Got it. And what about, um, you grew up in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. uh, the whole time, right? All the uh, way yeah. And then what? I went to high school in New Hampshire. Okay. So pretty close. Uh, Philip. Is it Phillips Exeter? Is that where yes. you were? Yeah. Okay. Um, I believe I know people that went there. I can't remember who offhand, but um, <laughs> so what about, you know, you and I have, I don't know if you remember this, but when we first, when I came on as a guest on West Wing Weekly, I was embarrassed because I didn't want to say your name because I felt like I was going <laughs> to butcher the pronunciation. So it took it. So, you know, so uh, Rishikesh, Earway. Is that proper pronunciation? First name, you nailed it on the first name. Last name is Hearway. Hearway. Oh, so the H is not silent. Okay. Exactly. Yes. So, so as we were, as I'm getting ready to interview, I was like, I want to ask him, it's 10,000 no's, but there's a really, you know, the elephant in the room is that that is a unique name. Um, at least I would think in Massachusetts, yeah. you know, when you were growing up, was there any element of being an outsider, were you treated differently because of that name? And did that have an effect on how you approach life and how you kind of have, have constructed a, a personality? I would imagine it has to be somewhat affected by that. Yeah. You know, there was, so I, I went to, I went to boarding school, um, when I was 13 for, you know, for my, starting with my freshman year and, uh, and I remember, I think it was, you know, like on a break sometime in my, my sophomore year, coming back and hanging out with a girl who I was friends with, but who I had had a crush on in middle school. Um, and, and I remember asking her after we had, we had hung out, you know, she was, she had a boyfriend, her boyfriend was a friend of mine. It was like, this was not a thing anymore. Although I still probably had some residual crush feelings for her, um, I mean, I definitely did. But I asked her. I was like, you know, I had a, I had a crush on you then, and and I asked her if if I was like, do you think that the fact that I was Indian, you know, that that I didn't look like everybody else in our school, because because I grew up in Peabody, Massachusetts, and it was predominantly white. Um, I was like, do you think that that affected 
whether or not you, I think I, I made it more general. I was like, do you think that that changed how girls saw me in terms of like, whether or not I was like a viable option, you know, like, or something like they could even consider me as someone to be attracted to. Right. And, and she said, you know, I think it probably did affect things. It probably does have, it probably did make a difference. Yeah. And, uh, and it like, you know, I only asked the question because I had a suspicion or I had, a, you know, some kernel of the thought, but hearing her confirm it, uh, you know, not so much in the moment, but I think at a larger macroscopic level really affected me. I, I, I realized I was like, oh, okay, this is, you know, this is just, it's just not fair, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and, but that's what it is. Um, yeah. so I think that, that, you know, I was 15, I think when we, when I had that conversation and I think, uh, it definitely, stayed with me. Um, but also at that time I had, I had already kind of moved on from that environment. I wasn't living in Peabody, Massachusetts anymore. I was at this, I was at this, you know, fancy boarding school and, uh, and you know, whatever, even though I was on financial aid, I felt like I fit in there in some, in some ways, you know, it was people from all over, not just the country, but people from all over the world, people yeah. of all different ethnicities and, religions and, uh, backgrounds. Um, and I felt like, you know, more, more comfortable. So I, I, I saw that there was like another way. And, and I think that, that I kind of realized that like what that had been didn't necessarily mean that's how it had to always be. Yeah. Yeah. It's just obviously on my mind as we're having this interview because of everything that's happening in the world. And I don't know when this will be released, but, um, yeah. And, and it, it brings up bigger conversation that I don't know that we will, can get into right now yeah. in our limited time, but where there's, there could be a, a form of, of racism. And there's also, I think an element of just high school, middle school, middle school kids that are afraid of anything that makes them stand out. Mm -hmm. And that would include being associated with someone who is different than the norm. Yeah. I, I think in some level, whether it, maybe that is racism, maybe that is just adolescence. I'm not, I'm not a combination. It's, it's all of the above maybe. Yeah. Um, it's and also, we shouldn't discount we shouldn't discount too deeply the fact that I was also a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I mean like there's there's definitely a level of reality where like no girl was gonna like me anyway because yeah. <laughs> I looked the way I looked and you know I might have played bas basketball and soccer, but I also played Dungeons and Dragons and like yeah. was on the academic bowl team. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, so you, you take that, you go, you go to Yale, uh, your experience there is a good one. You feel challenged. You feel, um, you feel like you fi find your tribe there as well in terms of the way people are thinking. Yeah, it was it, not at first. It was, it was tough when I first got there. Um, I think, I think I had very high expectations for, 
for that aspect, you know, for feeling like I was in a place even more so than in high school where, you know, these were going to be people who I felt a kinship with. But actually I, I didn't at first. It took a year or so for me to to find people who, who felt like my people. Um, and it actually took, I think, being, you know, starting a band in school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then I was an art major, uh, which you apply for uh, as a sophomore. So it was really like the the my sophomore year that I started to feel comfortable there. My my freshman year was a little bit rough. I still I felt like a um, bit of a fish out of water. I felt like everybody was um, I don't know everybody else was having a good time and I couldn't quite uh, figure out what the what the groove was. Yeah. And then and then and then from my sophomore year on, I realized I was like, oh okay. I, it turns out that I'm a particular kind of nerd, which is like an artsy one. Um, right. which is another kind of subset and, you know, and, uh, anyway, and, and then I, I found there were other people who were kind of like that and it was a, it was a small group within, within the school. But, um, but once I did, then I felt really happy. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you go, I mean, I'm kind of like hyperspacing a little bit, but you, there's, you graduate Yale 2000 and you start song exploder 2014. So there's a big, big gap in there and Mm -hmm. not that we need to cover all of it, but I'm just wondering like between one thing, one observation is just 2014 for a podcast is still pretty early in the Mm -hmm. trend. I mean, now everybody knows the term, actually still people don't know the term podcast, but I would say a lot more know now than from when I started. And when you started, it was you know, I certainly don't think I had heard the term. So you you had, you were ahead of the curve. But what I'm curious about is when you, what were your aspirations when you came out of Yale? You know, I don't know if you immediately came out West at that point um, or if you w- were stayed on the East Coast first, but what, what, what was kind of the trajectory? I know we're condensing a lot of time, but just walk us through because I'm, I'm interested in, in how you came to this, this hit podcast which sounds great now in retrospect, but I'm guessing at the time was not necessarily something on the horizon for you. No, definitely it didn't even it exist. Wasn't. I mean, the, the the format didn't even exist. So yeah, yeah, and and a lot about what the show is was really far from my. I mean, wasn't at all on my mind. Um, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So when I was in college, um, I did a mix of art and music. That was sort of really my life. Um, I, you know, I, I, I was trying to tour already, um, uh, with my, my band project, whatever is my solo. It was a solo thing. It was called the 1am radio. And, um, I had started a record label with some friends and, uh, and I really, it was really important to me to not just sort of like play shows on campus. I was trying to get out into the world at large and some, you know, play in front of strangers as much as possible because it felt like more real. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was trying to, so my, my junior and really senior year, especially, uh, I was doing that as much as possible while also being in school. And, um, and then, you know, and then I was an art major, I did photography and graphic design. And these were the three things that I really loved. And I wanted to do that in some way with, with my life. And the easiest thing was, uh, 
graphic design in terms of like making a living or having some kind of job. I was like, okay, th this is something that's like highly employable. So my plan was to, you know, work as a graphic designer and then try and do music on the side as much as possible. And, and, and my dream job in my head, besides being someone who like made records and toured, that's what I really wanted to do was just like play music all the time was also, I had this like sort of hard to, hard to fathom goal of being a film composer. I didn't really know what that meant, but I, I loved that idea. I had, I had actually originally started college as a film studies major. Um, and I wasn't totally sure even what that meant then to you, but I was just like film. Yes. That's exciting. You know, like as a freshman, I was like, that's what I want to do. Um, and, and then it turned out, you know, being a film studies major in college is like just writing a lot of essays <laughs> yeah. uh, and that, and I wanted to like make stuff. And that's how I ended up being an art major instead. Cause that was like the place where you could make things. Yeah. So I left school with the, the, these kinds of ideas in my head and, and wanting to um, figure out how to get there. And, and I got a job. I like, I left school and I went on a long tour with, with my, my friend playing um, shows as the 1am radio. And that was like my first thing out of school, went on tour, went on the road for like six weeks and it was awesome. And then I came back and I, um, and I ended up getting a job using sort of the design skills that I had, but it wasn't in a design capacity. And it was just like working at a startup. Um, and I actually got in touch with Josh Molina for the very first time because of this desire to be a film composer. Way back and, then. This yes. is in like early 2000s. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, I think this, yeah, this would have been um, December of 2000 or January of 2001. Um, I remember being, at, you know, I was living at my parents' house still. I was working in, in a town nearby. And so, um, you know, I had convinced myself that this would be the best way to, you know, try and make music with as much flexibility as possible. Um, just stay, you know, and, and anyway, I wrote to Josh, I found his, his email address. He had gone to Yale. Somebody told yeah. me before I, before I graduated, they were like, I said, I, I had, you know, ex said out loud this idea that I wanted to be a film composer, but I didn't really know anybody in that world. And, 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 and someone was like, Oh, you know, um, I think I'd been talking about sports night, which I had just been watching for the first time on comedy central in syndication. My sister introduced me to it like on, on break one year and we, we, and I loved it so much. And someone was like, you know, that guy, there's a guy on that show who went to Yale and I was like, which guy? And they're like, Oh, the guy who plays Jeremy. I was like, Oh, I love that guy. And so I ended up looking him up and, um, and one, and so like one night I, you know, I found his website and I found his email address and I wrote to him and I just said, Hey, I don't know if you'd be open to giving some advice to a young graduate, but I, um, I'm a fan of yours and I'm interested in being a film composer. I, I'm right now I'm living in Massachusetts, but I want to move. I don't want to be in my parents' house. I'm trying to figure out if I should just move to New York where I know a lot of people and it's close by. And I know there's some like indie filmmaking happening. You know, there were, there were directors like Hal Hartley, who I was a big fan of, um, and, and the production companies that he worked with, you know, there was New York film in indie filmmaking. I was like, there's that world. I was like, and then there's also LA, which I'd visited, you know, I'd been to on tour with my playing shows, but I didn't know anybody there. I was like, do, do you think do you think I, where do you think I should go? 
And Josh actually wrote back and he was like, he's like, I don't, he's like, you know, I, I know a couple of composers from playing poker with them. Um, and, it, but he's like, but as, as far as I can tell, if you want to do stuff in film, LA is the place to be. I was like, okay. And then I moved to New York anyway. <laughs> How long did you live in New York? Before? Not even a year, maybe like nine yeah. months. It wasn't, yeah. it was not the place for me. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then I've, eventually I moved to, moved to LA in, in 2002. Um, and, uh, and tried to, tried to do film composing stuff while also trying to do my band. Yeah. And, um, it was kind of tricky to figure out trying to do both and I, I couldn't actually figure it out. So I ended up just, just focusing on the band more. I did oh, a few, you did, you did. yeah, yeah. I did a few gigs here and there. I worked, worked as an assistant to a composer. I did some, I did, I was a music editor on a, on a film. I did sort of like gigs here and there on film. But I realized that there was kind of felt like there were two paths to being a successful film composer. One was you kind of like say yes to everything and try and try your hand at everything. And, um, until you just like fall into a path of success or you're somebody who does one thing and eventually you do it well enough that someone says, and you put out in the world that you want to be a composer. And then somebody says, Oh, I want the thing that you do. I want that for my project. And that felt more right to me. Cause I didn't feel like I was particularly versatile as a musician. I was sort of like, I have, I have a perspective, I have a vibe and, and that's what I'd like to explore. I'd like to explore this sort of like narrow swath of an aesthetic as broadly as possible, but still within these parameters, I don't want to be the person who's like, you know, on Monday I'll give, give, do this style of music. And on Tuesday I'll do a totally different style of music, which some yeah. people can do incredibly well. Yeah. It's important. It's important to notice that and to note that, that some people, yeah, are more go outward more and some go deeper. And to know that at that age is really important. And and as I'm hearing you kind of talk through this time period, almost st stumbling through in some way, there was some quote, and I don't have it in front of me, where you said, you, you know, they, they asked about like, you know, do you have any sideline gigs or sideline, you know, hobbies? And you said, I feel like my life is just a, a combination of sideline things put together. Yeah. And I identify with that. I've often said, I realized a few years ago that my, my career is like, has been like cobbled together from certain roles that were not necessarily in my wheelhouse, but then they, when you put them all together, they've led to something. And even yeah. now with the podcast and with everything else, I feel like my whole life is that way. It's kind of these little things put together and, and it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like some of those experiences or maybe most of them in that period are, were really the training ground for song explode, exploder or, or, or somehow informed your point of view when asking questions to these incredible musicians. I'm interested to hear how you, what, what was the, you know, you're talking what mid like 2005 to 2010 when you were, pursuing the composing. And I know you 
have composed. I, I think you still do. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did that look in your life? Like where, where did the idea for the podcast come from? What was happening kind of just prior to that? And yeah. did it end up taking over your whole life or was it still something where it was, it appeared to be this huge thing, but for you, it was just a, a portion of your day. Actually, I, I wanted to ask you something. Um, when, when you say that, uh, that you also felt that like your, your career is kind of a cobbling together of different things. What was the, what's the longest time that you've gone after having had like, I guess, whatever you would consider like your first success as an actor, what was the longest you have ever gone between sort of successes? Oh God. <laughs> There's a reason I have a show called 10,000 No's. I've had way too many of those downtimes. I mean, um, well, I'll, I'll tell like, you one like story. Pre-podcast. Pre, oh yeah. Yeah. Like I mean, a public I'll tell side you, hustle. Yeah. I'll tell you. Oh, oh, a public side hustle. Well, no, no, no. I'm saying so, pre-public so, side hustle. Like pre-public. So something... Okay. So, so I'll, I'll tell you what I did. I, you know, I bartended for a long time. It took me a long hmm. time to make money as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I bartended, I lived cheaply in New York and I was, I was somehow able to, the bartending afforded me to go do all these plays for free and independent films for free and just get experience. The biggest break that I had, or, you know, I call it early on, but really it was, I got the job the end of 2001 and I had moved into the city beginning of 2000 of 95. So that's, you know, six or seven years mm-hmm. later um, was the Sopranos. And that was, that was really the first time that I was able to say I'm an actor without explaining to everybody <laughs> what I did. I mean, it really took me so long because I'd say I'm an actor, but I bartended at, at Blackfin and Turtle Bay and, you know, California Pizza Kitchen. It was always an explanation. Yeah. And then finally there was this, external validation that allowed me to, they actually knew the show. So they would point me out. Now, what people don't realize is that I really didn't make a lot of money on that show at all. And I came out to LA shortly thereafter, got married right around that time and had a lot of fanfare, but really big goose egg after like four months out here. I thought I was coming out here and like my life had changed and there we go. Went back to New York and actually had to get back behind the bar after Sopranos, which you can imagine is a bit of a blow to the ego and a bit of a blow to this vision that I thought I paid my dues for six or seven years. I got this break. Let's go. And all of a sudden I'm back. Um, in that time period, I believe I started coaching beginner actors and doing like a scene study class. And mm. I just loved it. I actually loved teaching. And I didn't put this together until recently that that really, the, the thing that I enjoyed about coaching and teaching were really the seeds to the podcast. Right. That that's what it is. I mean, this is just like a virtual version of kind of what I was doing. Yeah. You know, you're watching people's work, you, you know, acting classes, I always say are like the most pure form 
of acting. And then when you get an actual gig, it's like taking an acting class and doing it up on like a a skyscraper being erected in New York City and you're 80 stories up on a steel beam with things swinging. And that's that's what it's like being on a set. You know, try to be pure there. You know, that's so really that's um, I guess that was like the little sideline gig. And then there were just periods, you know, after West Wing, I came out here and uh, West Wing brought me out. I I was here for pilot season, got something that turned into more than I thought it was going to be was brought back out. I had that. I had another job in Canada at the same time. I thought, oh my God, LA is amazing. And then both of them ended. uh, And I went for, I think, eight months with no work. But at that point I had made a decision. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to, uh, you know, nickel and dime my way out of it. I'm going to collect unemployment and feel the pain. Yeah. And, and just, just audition for whatever and, you can. And get the next gig. And it yeah. took me a long, long time. And then finally I got this pilot that Guy Ritchie was directing, which ended up not going. But then other things kind of came after that. And it's been a very, very bumpy road. The last three years have been the best, but really it was a bumpy, bumpy road. Yeah. You know? Um Did you ever, did you ever... I love how you've turned the tables on me here. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever... I must have been getting close to some sensitive stuff. In there. <laughs> well, these are questions that I've, I've, I've had for a while. Uh, so I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm using your time to, to get to get the information that I want. What was there? Um, was there a time when you felt like you were closest to abandoning that idea of just gritting it out? Like maybe not in that first eight months, but like later where you, where you're like okay once again I'm in a you know I'm in the position of like looking for work yeah um there have been many yeah there were there have been many times I I you know said this I feel like I've probably said this several times on this podcast there are many times where if I were smart I would have quit you know the 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 external world was not necessarily backing me up and yet every time I was just, I mean, so close to collapse that I thought maybe I'm not going to make it this time. Something would come through. Just a job. Uh, I remember on one birthday when I was still in New York, I remember talking to my dad on the phone. I specifically remember this being, it was post Sopranos and I was on the phone. I was in Central Park and, and I was like, I really don't know we, you know, if I can pay, like, I don't know, am I going to pay my mortgage this month? Am I going to, and I got back, got off the phone, went back and in the mailbox was like the exact, now granted it was a tiny little spot that anybody who lives in New York would know. It was like the square foot, the square footage of this piece of paper, but, (laughs) but, but it was ours, you know? And, and, and we loved it, but, but I got back and that I had residual checks like for almost exactly what I needed to come up with. <laughs> and I thought, you know, again, this may be the, I, I, I call it willful denial, but it's, it's just this thought of like, yeah, this is, this was what was meant to be. This is a sign that I'm, I'm on the right track. I and like I just told denial. myself that long enough. And then eventually it became true. 
But it, it feels to me, and, and, and to most people in this industry, have, have taken their knocks in some way, shape, or form. But it feels to me like I, I really did feel like I took, I took a lot of knocks to the point where, you know, I had other skill sets that probably could have been monetized in other industries. And just, I don't know, I just, it just never felt right. And I just stuck it out. You know, mm-hmm. um, you have successfully thrown me off where <laughs> I was, um, <laughs> get back to you for a second. Um, I could tell, I could tell you my version of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I kind of came up, uh, in music a little bit in like a DIY punk scene while I was doing, um, you know, the, the kinds of shows that I was playing, um, at the end of college and, and afterwards, especially where like a lot of sort of like basement punk shows, I, I ended up becoming friends with some guys who were in a, in a moderately successful, um, punk band and we would tour together, even though our music didn't sound anything alike, they would sort of, they would take me along with them sometimes as an opener. And I have to interject. You didn't come across a guy named John Porcelli at any point. Do you know that name? I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Uh, where, He's a guest. Where I... He's coming up. He, he was big in the punk the punk scene in New York City in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, but I think he carried on. So he's older than you, but just just curious. Sorry. Yeah. Go on. Prob- probably, probably before my time. Um, and, but it really taught me, you know, like there was a... Uh, there were a couple of bands and record labels that really inspired me, you know, um, Fugazi from Washington, D.C. and, and uh, the re- their record label Discord Records. And um, I remember reading, uh, I remember reading this, you know, guide. I think I printed it out. There was like this label, Simple Machines, um, these two women who had a record label in the 90s, you know, that they had done themselves. They were like, here's a guide to starting your own record label. And, um, and you know, there was this whole ethos of like, you don't need somebody else's permission. You just do everything yourself. And you, you know, you don't, you don't wait for some gatekeeper to let you in, you build your own machine and you go. And, um, and, and I really liked that. And I was inspired by that. And so that was what, what I did for a while, you know, and I booked my own shows and I put out my own records and, uh, you know, and a lot, and I would pay for it with like my whatever graphic design jobs I could get. Um, and, I think I kind of just like carried on with that, my own sense of determination and enthusiasm for that for a long time. But, um, at a certain point when I wanted to get to the next level, I felt like, okay, well I could, I I did want to be on somebody else's record label. I wanted to like have my band be bigger. I wanted to get a booking agent. And that was when it started to really feel like, um, the the you know the first level of like the accumulation of my ten thousand nos yeah um and and then and and that happened kind of a bunch over the years and i i don't know you know like i would have moments where i that that felt like little successes and then long periods that felt like failures or just just things like like it just felt like pushing a boulder up the hill all the time and i might make like a little bit of momentum for forward but it took so much effort just to move a little bit forward you know at the time my dad would be like maybe you should go to graduate school you know what he's like like, you're running this like it's a small business my my parents are big believers in you know graduate degrees (laughs) and um 
uh, my dad has a PhD. And so, you know, like he's like any, whatever they wanted me to be a lawyer that that wasn't going to happen. They had wanted me to be a doctor way back in the day. That was definitely not happening. He was like, well, what about being, a, you know, going to business school? You're trying to do this, mu- you know, you have this record label, you're, you're, you're running your music like it's a business. And I was like, no, I cannot take my foot off the gas for even a second because if I do, you know, it's, it takes so much work just to get a little bit of momentum. And if I stop for two years or whatever, I'll, I'll lose everything. I had the same thing with an MFA. Like, do I want to go do a three-year program? And I kept saying, I can't get yeah. out of the, yeah. So yep. exactly. Yeah. That, then eventually my dad was like, okay, well you did art. You were an art major. What about an MFA? Like just something like, could you get a master's in something, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. But you never did, right? I never did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for, for this reason. And, and um, uh, you know, and there, there was like just enough, like fumes of success for me to kind of carry on from, from, from year to year. And I think in 2007, that was the first year where I made my living as a musician, you know, where I wasn't like, I wasn't doing music supplemented by something else. That was the first year where I was like, I'm paying my bills from making music. And it felt like incredible, but did it stay that way since then, or were there years where you had to go do other yeah. things? Yeah. So that was that year was great, and and that happened. And then the next year, you know, I was touring. I had produced a record for another band. I had done a bunch. You know, I'd had some songs in like commercials and like TV shows, and and those. That's where like you know the real way to make money as a musician nowadays because yeah. nobody buys records anymore. Um, and so that felt great. But yeah, immediately like the next year. In 2008, I had to go back to, to doing, you know, design gigs on the side. And then the same thing in 2009. And then, and then, you know, and I ended up getting a job working at the, the label that ended up signing my band, you know, I ended up working for them as like the art director for, for the label. And then eventually I was like, I can't do both of these things. I just want to make music. And so I quit the job to try and finish my next record and, that record came out and I really, really, really thought and, and hoped and wanted, like, if I put enough behind this, like I'm in the spot, I'm in a moment where like, this could be the one that like breaks out and it didn't happen. Um, and you know, like, it's not to say it was a failure again, like there were little things like, you know, again, it got to, there were some songs on some yeah. TV shows. There were a few checks that came in and things like that. And I, and I did, I believe I did make my, you know, paid my, my bills that year with, uh, with music money, but it was not, it was not what I had been dreaming of. Yeah. Um, I did get to score my first film though that year. I got to score my first feature film and it was, a, that was an amazing opportunity. And I thought, oh, now this door has opened, but you know, you get paid, I got paid like so little and, and it's not something that was like a career yet, but I thought, okay, the movie went to Sundance. I was like, here we go. You know, it got bought by IFC. I'm like, and then, and then like nothing for another, like there was no second movie, you know? Yeah. yeah. This is Um, so comforting by the way, for me to hear because Before we got on to talk, I'm like, this happens to me every time I interview someone that's kind of, you know, kind of in a a parallel universe to me. I'm reading about you and I'm just like, God, this guy is, I I felt so terrible about myself as I look at your accomplishments. (laughs) And so it's so comforting to hear you 
went through this. It's a, it's like identical in different with different backdrops. You know. Yeah, yeah. The, so the, the the thing I think the thing that really haunted me and still haunts me is like I knew I'm I know that I'm good at persevering. Like I know that I'm good at like trying to create these opportunities for myself because of like I've had to. There hasn't been, there haven't been many moments where it suddenly, where I like lucked into something. Yeah. I feel like it, it's been a matter of like pushing that boulder up the hill a little bit and, you know, and like maybe you get to rest here and there, but like every successful thing comes with like all of this weight being on your shoulders. And I think the thing that scared me the most or that scares me the most is that any success that I have had at all in any kind of form is only a result of me being good at the hustle and not because of any actual innate talent that I have. Because if you have real talent, then wouldn't this be easier? You know, like, like, like I look around and see people who are, who are incredibly talented and I see their success and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. They're talented. They're successful. And me, it takes so much effort to just like squeeze this little bit out of this rock. I'm like, well, that's not, that's because I don't actually have the talent, of the, and, but I, I was able to carve out this little bit because, you know, whatever, like I'm, I'm trying to be a good salesman, which is not the same thing as talent. Yeah. I f- fully identify with that and I'm biased in this area because my answer is going to support <laughs> me saying that maybe I do have talent, which is. I've had that same thing. When I'm in my lowest points, that's how I feel too. I feel like, well, it's not like they can't find me by now. Like, right. I've been around for a while. Someone could find me if they had to find, like if they saw my work and they really, really loved it, wouldn't they find me? And on the flip side, I think there are so many, there, there is so much serendipity that goes into every job that I get and that anybody gets. Mm-hmm. And and I kind of believe, now I believe this so that I can keep going as well. <laughs> so there's an ulterior motive to this, this, this way of thinking. But I kind of think for someone like you or someone like me who keeps creating opportunities for themselves, what you're doing is just giving yourself more shots at the hoop so that one of them yeah. you may hit. And, and on the other hand, by being that type of person, like right now, I feel kind of because all of these things have had to been be muscled so much to get me where I am. I feel like they're a little there's a little less of like there will always be the ups and downs the month to month or the year to year. Mm-hmm. But I feel like maybe hopefully because of the infrastructure that I've been forced to build, that the downs will only go down two notches as opposed to 15 notches. And that's yeah. what I think of when I when I look at you, like how bad with all that you have built now in multiple arena, you know, multiple hit podcasts, um, m- multiple jobs as a composer, uh, touring as a musician, how far down can it really go? It will go down. I mean, you'll have nice years and you'll have not as nice years, but because you've been forced to do the things you've, done there's a little more a little more certainty there's never any certainty you know but yeah but i i look at that and i think 
Is that maybe more peace of mind as a human than someone who's fully got the talent, but they're they're either on 110 or they're on, you know, seven yeah. versus, you know, being on 95 for a lot of the time, going down to 75, maybe coming back up to 80, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know. Is that a better, is that a better life for you? I don't know, but we always have that wonderlust kind of that we, you know, can't help yeah. it. That's why we're, you know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know that, the, you know, what your take is on that. Uh, maybe we just don't have the talent. Maybe that's what it is. You know? I mean, with, with Song Exploder starting, that was definitely me trying to create an opportunity for myself because, uh, I mean, just the financial uncertainty of being a musician felt like it was too much. I, I think I, I had finally scored like the second film, um, of my career by that point. But again, like it was an, you know, it was an indie film. It went to South by Southwest and it got bought by CNN. So it was like, it was a success story, but it's, uh, it was the kind of thing where it was a small film and, and I didn't got, I did not get paid very much, especially considering how many hours went into it. And, and again, like with the first film, there was no next film that was kind of like in the wings because of it. Um, and I was going to have to grind just as hard. I like worked so hard to get that, that movie. It was like a, it was directed by a woman named Penny Lane who, who had done a short film that I'd seen at a film festival and I loved. And I wrote to her and tell, telling her how much I loved the film. And I like signed up for a newsletter and in one of her newsletter, uh, issues, she had mentioned that she was doing this film about Richard Nixon and, and, uh, and I wrote to her and I was like, do you have a composer for that movie? I love that era of American politics and, and, you know, if there's, if you don't have a composer, let me know. I would love, you know, cause I, she had not done a feature before. Um, and so I was like, maybe she, she doesn't yet have like the person in her life, you know, who does this. Right. And, uh, and you know, I'd never met her. <laughs> I just was, I had just written to her before and telling her how much of a fan I was. And so, um, she was like, she's like, oh, you know, we have some people in mind, but you know, you're welcome to audition for it. And, you know, and there were like 10 people auditioning for it. And I ended up getting it. And that felt, that felt great. Um, but like, I had to go through a few rounds to get it. I, I yeah. had to uh, really um, push to, to land that gig. And so the idea of doing that again for, for film number three, you know, I was like, well, how long is it going to take? I don't know. Yeah. So this yeah. is 2013 when that film came out. And at that point, the last 1am radio record had already been out and I'd done my touring for that. And I had kind of was sitting now in this feeling of like, well, that record was not a success or, you know, or whatever. It wasn't like artistically, a it, artistically it was, but career wise, it wasn't. Yeah. Well, I career wise, it wasn't, it wasn't career changing. And so then, you know, you, the, the thought that maybe the thoughts creeps in inevitably that like, well, maybe it also artistically wasn't that, much of a success either you know like it start you when you start to make your art your living when you can't make a living from your art you start to question the merits of the art that you're doing yeah which is a bummer and it's not and which which really doesn't make sense if you look at van gogh you look at you know look at history doesn't make sense it's actually not true but yeah. we'll believe anything that will pummel us (laughs) yeah exactly and especially in la you know when you see again like it's really easy to come to equate commercial success with artistic merit. Um, 
And if you don't have one, that means you don't have the other. Uh, so I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I decided that that year I was going to just, I was going to finally take my foot off the gas, um, of my music career and of the 1am radio specifically. And, um, and allow myself to be open to other ideas that I'd, that I'd had or other possibilities and just like have a year of like planting seeds instead of mm. just trying to harvest the same crop, the same, same crop of my 1am radio or film scoring seeds and, and just see what else was out there. Okay, folks, we are cutting it there for this week. Next week, we'll be back with part two of this conversation, as well as our top three takeaways. Thanks again to Rishi. I hope all of you are inspired and are going to check out Song Exploder on Netflix, as well as more information about Rishi in our show notes at 10,000knows.com. Share this episode with your friends and followers. If you think it can help them in some way, leave a review or take a screenshot on your phone and post it to Instagram. Tag at 10,000knows and at Maddie Dell so we can thank you. If you're not already, follow at 10,000 Knows on Instagram and connect with us at 10,000knows.com to be added to our mailing list. And don't forget to tune in for our brief little Monday morsels to kick off your week. See you soon. Mm-hmm.